Hello, friends. Welcome to the ATC Double Cut. In today's episode, I have a very special guest. Some of you may recognize him. It is Dr. Michael Becken, uh, who recently graduated from the University of Wisconsin. And uh, where are you? Where are you now, Michael? I'm in southern Norway now, in uh, just a town uh, called Grimstad, uh, working for the uh, Norwegian Institute for Bioeconomy uh, here. Okay, wow. So how did you end up uh, going from Madison, Wisconsin, all the way to Norway? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, after I graduated uh, in May of 2022 from, from Doug Soldat's lab in Madison, I uh, accepted a Fulbright scholarship to do a one-year research project at University of Oslo. And that was studying um, something a bit different from my PhD, which was you know golf course resource use. But uh, during that Fulbright year in Oslo, I studied carbon cycling in peatlands uh, in Norway. Uh, especially drained peatlands um, and the their carbon emissions to the atmosphere and, and how we try to try to reduce that. So um, uh, and then during that year, it wasn't my intention to stay in Norway, but uh, Trygve Amelid and his lab here at, at Nibio, the uh, Norwegian Institute for Bioeconomy, um, had an open position in the Turfgrass Research Group and also were looking for somebody that could uh, continue some some peatland work as well, and so just seemed like a uh, kind of unbelievable fit. And uh, so I started here a couple months ago, and have ended up staying in Norway a lot longer than I originally thought I would. Awesome. Well, welcome back to the wonderful turfgrass world. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Thank you. Good to be here, Michael. This being the ATC double cut, we have to talk about one of the ATC blog posts to start the conversation. And the one that I'm going to use today has a title of what's the best way to keep up with all you're doing. And in it, I list uh, the ways to keep up with the research that I'm doing or with the information that I'm sharing. And one of those ways is email newsletters. In fact, I plan to send out an email newsletter this afternoon with an announcement about an upcoming conference in Thailand. Um, And if you happen to not uh, get that newsletter, it probably means that you're not signed up to it. So you can go to this blog post, which I'll put a direct link to in the show notes, and and you can find out the social media channels that you can keep up with me, or the ATC website, or the podcasts, or Pace Turf, or, or the email newsletters, or the YouTube channel, or whatever. There's all kinds of ways to keep up with how I'm sharing Turfgrass information. And when I knew that you would be able to talk with me and we could record this episode, I thought, you know what? There's that really interesting grassland research article that you wrote, and I mentioned this in a previous ATC update newsletter. And I said, this is a really good article that shows what's normal for nitrogen use on golf courses. So um, let's talk about that article a little bit. Um, that let's see. I think I can show that on the screen. Some people are watching this, uh, and some most people will be listening. But I think, uh, I think, how do I find that? Yeah. All right. That's showing on the screen now. Um, 
it's the correction to qu the article quantifying golf course nitrogen use efficiency. And the correction was not uh, changing any of the conclusions. It was just updating some of the calculations. This is a wonderful open access article, which means nobody has to pay to read it. They can get it for free. And I thought this was really interesting. Quantifying golf course nitrogen use efficiency. The number one thing that I found interesting was table four. And when, uh, when, when I read the original paper, I, I like from the very start, I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome because they're going to be able to calculate uh, how much nitrogen people are actually using compared to how much we would expect them to use based on their location. You know, because Madison, Wisconsin, you expect to use a different amount of nitrogen than Havana, Cuba, right? So, yep. yeah, so so I got to the table uh, four, um, which I'm, I'm now showing the corrected table four here. Um, and and uh, so I anyway, it's awesome. Uh, table four has a uh, table caption of N max values that allowed the growth potential nitrogen requirement model to predict mean nitrogen use on golf courses for both cool and warm season turf grasses. And, um, yeah, can you, I don't know, tell yeah. me yeah. like why, maybe just an overview of why, why that's an interesting article, why you did the research. And then maybe we'll talk about some of these specifics, like why I'm so excited about table. Yeah. Four. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, why we did the research is we were interested in, uh, establishing what, how much nitrogen, uh, well, phosphorus and potassium too, but this article fo fo focuses on nitrogen. How much nitrogen golf courses use? Um, what the variation in nitrogen use is across golf courses? But then what we're most interested in is trying to determine what causes that variation. Why does one golf course, say, use more nitrogen uh, than another golf course? Is it a difference in climate? Is it a difference in management practices? Maybe it's a difference in soil type or a difference in grass type, because there's so many things that could cause variation in how much nitrogen you use uh, that we wanted to try to quantify how much is being used, uh, what the variance is, and then try to explain why that variance is occurring. And so that was the basic, um, basically, basically, basic framework that we brought to the research. And, and what were the main conclusions that that you've yeah. found. Yeah. So the main conclusions, the the mean amount or the average amount of nitrogen that, that is being used on golf courses is not a surprise. Um, we did this work around the US and around Europe, and we found similar averages to other projects like the GCSAA environmental profile work. So that wasn't a big surprise. But what was a big surprise is how, how much variance there is between um, how much nitrogen is used both in different regions, but also how much, especially how much variance there is within a region. So if you only look at golf courses in the upper Midwest, for example, around the area of Madison, where I, where I was working, um, some golf courses in the Midwest region will use far more than others. <clears throat> some will use literally half the amount of nitrogen on a golf course that could be just down the street. And so we tried to start explaining that. We looked at you know the management practices, we looked at soil type, we looked at grass type, all the things that I was saying. 
And basically what we concluded is that it's really hard to explain this variance. It doesn't seem to be related to soil type for the most part. It doesn't really seem to be related to grass type. It's not related to any of the management practices that um, golf courses tell us that they're using. And so in some ways you could say that we failed. We tried to explain all this variance with all these different variables, um, but we weren't able to do that. And so it left us still wondering why we have this, this variance. And the best we can tell is that it's, it's sort of dependent on the manager, um, that some managers just like to use or think that using a lot more nitrogen uh, is, is needed and some less. Uh, and that's, <laughs> that's the best we can do is that it's, it's really manager dependent. It's not dependent on any of the sort of management or environmental variables that we necessarily thought that it would be. So it's it's the decision of people. Yeah, it's okay. the human element, I guess you could say. And we can assume that all of the, you looked at stuff like green fees and rounds and stuff too. So even across like high budget or low budget, it wasn't only like that the higher uh, the maintenance budget was or the higher the green fee was. Did that mean that they're necessarily going to use more nitrogen or or was that not really related either? Uh, that's that's no, that's a great question. We did we did those exactly those tests. Yes, um, it turns out that that green fee is not related to nitrogen rate. That maintenance budget is very weakly correlated. So there's not much of a relationship. Um, there is if you look specifically in the northwest region, which is the region that we had the most golf courses in our study. There was about a fifty a fifty percent correlation between. Uh, fertilizer budget and how much nitrogen you actually use. So about half the time when you uh, have a higher fertilizer budget, when you're just spending more money on, 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 on fertilizers, you're actually using more nitrogen. And that was, that was the by far the strongest predictor that we could find to explain variance in nitrogen rate was, was just literally how much money are you spending? And, and so I guess that's the only 50% of the time in yeah, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, that's just 50% of the time in one region. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's not not particularly helpful, uh, <laughs> not a particularly strong predictor, but it's the strongest predictor we could find. Awesome. Um, well, yeah. that, uh, although maybe you didn't find the answer you were looking for, you found something interesting, uh, which is, it's interesting to know that, um, I think that one could almost make an inspirational talk about this saying, wow, there's people out there producing good turf grass because you're, you're checking from professionally managed turf grass sites. So I always say that, you know, by default, that's going to be good turf grass because if you take a random sample of golf courses in the world, uh, you're going to get some that are quite good. And so if you can't find a, a, a strong correlation between anything and nitrogen rate, then that means there's a great opportunity out there. There, there are people getting good results without putting a lot of nitrogen. And yeah. okay, so so that's exciting. I can make the inspirational speech, but I bet there's people listening or watching that are like, "Why does this even matter?" Why does Micah say that you can make an inspirational talk about being able to produce good turf with lower nitrogen? Why am I saying that 
less nitrogen would be desirable here. And could you kind of give us a a, a view in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions or, uh, I mean, I guess that's kind of what it would come down to me, I'm guessing, but you, you, you study this, you know, you can explain it. Why? Why do I think less nitrogen is better? Is is that right? Or should should people be saying, oh, there's an opportunity for people to put the proper amount of nitrogen, which might be higher? Can you can you explain right. that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's there's a so many environmental reasons why, and also economic reasons why using less nitrogen is is a good idea. Um, of course, there's an optimal level of nitrogen use in managed turf grass, right? So I don't want to make the point that no nitrogen is the right amount. Um, certainly, turf grass needs to recover from, from damage, um, from traffic, and, and nitrogen is, is hugely helpful um, in, in that, obviously. So, um, but excess nitrogen is a problem environmentally because that nitrogen will leach through the soil profile, will find its way to groundwater sources, um, and it's a, it's a groundwater contaminant a lot of areas of the U.S. now can't drink their groundwater because it has too much, not a lot of areas, but it, certain areas in the, in the Midwest, especially can't drink their groundwater because it's got too much nitrogen and that's toxic to us as humans, especially toxic to young children. Um, it's also a problem in terms of surface water, slight increases in the amount of nitrogen in surface water changes the, um, chemistry of the water. And then, then also changes the, um, Ecolot, the, the health of aquatic communities that, that live um, in, 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 those, uh, in those water bodies, problems with, with eutrophication and um, um, problems all up and down the aquatic food chain. And then you have the greenhouse gas emissions, which you were talking about. So the release of uh, nitrous oxide into the atmosphere as a result of any nitrogen fertilizer application. So the more nitrogen you're applying, um, the more uh, nitrous oxide you're going to be emitting, which is not good for your, your carbon balance. Um, it also takes a lot of, there's a lot of embedded energy, a lot of embedded carbon in that nitrogen fertilizer itself because it takes a lot of energy to produce that. So just by using more, you are emitting more carbon um, in the supply chain. And so those are, you know, uh, some reasons, but then also from a, just a a budgeting standpoint or an economic standpoint, a golf course, it costs more to <laughs> buy more fertilizer to apply that. Um, and then also you can have this sort of synergistic sort of negative spiral. I think golf courses that are using too much nitrogen often are, have grass that's growing too fast. They're mowing more than they need to. Uh, they're, they have surfaces that are accumulating more organic matter than they need to. And there's a whole, whole host of problems with pests and, uh, water use that you get into. So um, there's just so many good reasons to not want to start that sort of downward spiral of being in a situation where you have too much nitrogen, too much organic matter, pest problems, and, you know, on down the road. So uh, I've probably been talking for too long already, but that gives you no, some this is this is a podcast. And <laughs> uh, we, we, we know that the people that are listening to this are interested in these topics so i'm sure that they're as equally fascinated in hearing what you have to say about this as i am so yeah i thank you for that comprehensive explanation and i think it becomes more apparent to me now at at this stage of my career 
um, than it did when I was a much younger person and, and was a golf course superintendent. Um, you know, 25 years ago, I was a golf course superintendent and I kind of liked fertilizer because it made the grass healthier, I thought. Um, and, and if I put nitrogen, it made the grass greener and it allowed the grass to grow. And I had mowers that I could send out to cut the grass. And if I cut the grass when it was green and growing, it would make the grass beautiful. And then people would give me compliments about how the golf course looked. And, and I wasn't thinking about, certainly I wasn't thinking about greenhouse gas emissions at all. Um, I was using what I thought was relatively affordable sources of nitrogen. Uh, so, so the fertilizer cost wasn't a huge factor for me. And I, I didn't think long-term about this is accumulating more thatch. This is causing me to have to mow more than I otherwise would. This is causing me to have to manage thatch or top dress more than I otherwise would. Because I just kind of thought that mowing was normal. I thought that top dressing was normal. I thought that thatch, uh, thatch just accumulated. That was 25 years ago. And I think every year I've learned a little bit more. And I hope I continue to learn. Uh, and now I just think, man, if we can stop that thatch from accumulating in the first place, if we can mow less, it's just going to make our jobs easier, assuming that we're still meeting the desired standard of, of turf grass performance. And so there's a, a logic to maintenance that I get with uh, more experience um, that I am excited about and I'd like to share with people. And I think that variance that you saw uh, around the average, meaning there's an average value that I'm so excited about that's in table four, which I'm going to put back up on the screen. Um, I, I'm so excited about what that uh, average is because it's really useful for me to know what's normal, what people are doing. But what's what's exciting is that some people are applying twice as much, some people are applying half as much as that, or maybe an even wider range. Uh, if you did a bigger survey, you may find an even wider range within the same region with the same grass. So that tells you from the data that you collected that it's possible to um, to do better than we're currently doing. And and uh, and in, and you're not we're not saying anybody out there is doing bad. Uh, it's just I look at it as like, wow, what a room for improvement we have. Yeah, right, right. I mean, I think that's the that's one of the take home messages is like, assuming, I mean, assuming that all of the golf courses in our study are meeting some, you know, standard of performance, which I think is, you know, a reasonable assumption, um, that basically that means that some people are able to get by with a lot less nitrogen, um, than others. And, uh, and also I think what's, what's interesting is that I think that you can use maintenance budget as kind of a proxy for how nice a golf course is in a lot of circumstances. Like the more, the more you have to manage the golf course, generally the nicer the golf course is, but there's very little, at least for nitrogen, there's very little correlation to what your maintenance budget is and what, how much nitrogen you're using. So that means that a lot of high maintenance budget golf courses, which are presumably very high quality golf courses are actually not using that much nitrogen. And so, in some ways, I think we are stumbling into a quantification of manager skill. Some people have are really skilled at not using very much nitrogen, but still producing a really nice, high-quality golf course. And I think that's what we sort of want to want to. That's what we want to strive for. 
Yeah. And then, yeah, let's figure out what those particular skills are and, and what particular techniques those people are using to get really yeah. high quality turf with yeah. less nitrogen than others are using. And then right. let's, uh, let's on a, a large scale, try to implement those. And what would we get? We get better golfing surfaces, presumably, and perhaps mm -hmm. the ability to, to reallocate some of the resources. Like it takes a lot of time to mow fairways. So if, if you're applying more nitrogen than necessary to fairways, and it, maybe there's a better use of time than, uh, than mowing fairways. So, right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good. So yeah. let's talk about these numbers in the table four that I've referred to. Um, I, I'm going to look at that. Uh, so table four, it's, it's linking the nitrogen rate on a monthly basis to the growth potential calculation. Um, if anybody's interested in this, search uh, my website or, or read this paper to learn more about it or go to the paceturf.org website to read more about growth potential. But basically, the growth potential is a function that takes the air temperature at a location and it converts that and just says, okay, for the effective temperature, are the temperatures really good for grass to grow or are the temperatures way too cold or way too hot? And, and it puts a number to that on a zero to 100% scale or just zero to one. And it turns out that you can link uh, when the, you can link nitrogen use to that because you assume if the temperature is, is freezing, the grass won't grow. So the nitrogen requirement will be zero. And, and that's when the growth potential is zero also. So you end up linking um, the, the, expected nitrogen use of the grass or the nitrogen fertilizer requirement of the grass to how much it's growing. And you predict that by GP. It's kind of crude, uh, but it turns out to be really effective because it makes a beautiful growth curve that works for anywhere in the world. That's not exactly how the grass is going to grow, but it's a, it's a nice approximation of, of what, how close the temperatures are to optimum for photosynthesis or not. And so you did this survey data and you checked, you're like, uh, how does this work? And, um, and you calculated what the maximum value was that you would link to GP to actually fit the average of the data that you collected in the survey. And I've, I've never done any research about this. So I'm just, I've just always been kind of guessing at what numbers I would use. And um, the original Pace Turf recommendation uh, was for 0.8 pounds, I, I believe, for cool season grass per month as a maximum or uh, four grams of nitrogen per square meter or 40 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare. And I realized that if you do that, the grass grows too fast. So I've dropped that down. I wrote a 2013 article describing how I recommend linking nitrogen to growth potential to make a prediction. And in that, I think I used the number of uh, three grams of nitrogen per square meter or, or 0 0.6 pounds of nitrogen per thousand square feet or 30 grams of nitrogen per hectare as what I would recommend as a maximum value. But that was 10 years ago. Over the past 10 years, I've noticed that a lot of people are using less nitrogen, still producing good results. So certainly for creeping bent grass on putting greens, I've been using uh, two grams of nitrogen as, as a maximum. So I've cut in half what the original recommendation was, and I've cut uh, by 50% what my recommendation was only 10 years ago, because I saw what's actually working. 
but I haven't done research on it. I was just guessing. So you come up with the value. The average in your survey for cool season grass on greens was uh, 2.3 grams or 23 kilograms per hectare. And I was like, wow, that's, that is wonderful to know that number that that's the average. And so, so thank yeah. you so much. I, yeah. I was just so excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Yeah, no, absolutely. That it was originally, um, a smaller value than we thought. Right. So, you know, you have this growth potential that is this growth curve and then you know, what you show in your 2013 article is that then you can use that growth potential and multiply that basically by what you call or uh, an N max parameter. So like how much at the, at a perfect um, growth potential at hundred percent growth potential, what's the maximum amount of nitrogen that uh, you want to use under the, that perfect growing condition. And that's, you know, it's a qualitative parameter. It's, it's what you think the maximum N rate should be. Uh, and then if you multiply those two things together, what the growth potential is times uh, what the maximum amount of nitrogen that you want to use, then when that growth potential is less than one, let's say it's 50%, then you'll use half the maximum amount of nitrogen because the grass presumably is growing at half of its maximum, half of its maximum rate. And so, yeah, exactly. Our, our goal with the study was to see in our survey data what the nmax parameter um, that people are are basically uh, what what they are what they're using. Um, I mean, we know that they're not not all of them are using this model, but if they were using the model, what is the nmax parameter um, that, that matches their that matches their fertilizer program? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There you go. And so, yeah, what we came out with was I think that's quite interesting. I didn't know that story about you dropping it down to. Uh, two grams per square meter for your NMAX parameter. And that's essentially what we found the golf course superintendents in our survey, which covered um, five different regions of the US and three in Europe, have basically arrived at the same conclusion um, that, that you did. Um, mm -hmm. But what I would note is that we did this for C3 or cool season or C and C4 uh, uh, warm season grasses is that in our survey, golf course superintendents that are managing warm season grasses are using an NMAX parameter of, you know, 4.7, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, which is more than double uh, for putting greens. Yep. It's more than double than, than cool season grasses. So I don't know, does that surprise you, Micah, a little bit? No, because uh, for, I'll tell you what I use for different grasses. Uh, for, yeah. for Sinodin, for Bermuda grass on putting greens, I use 40, uh, 40 kilograms per hectare or four grams that's my maximum. And see, I was so happy that what I'm currently using as maximums came in lower than what your survey said, because I always tell people, uh, if you put nitrogen or, you know, you put any kind of fertilizer, if you put too much, it's really hard to get that back. Like if yeah. you overapplied, you've, you're not going to get that back. But if you underapply, you can always go out and put out a little bit more. So what I'm trying to do is like set it so that we we don't over apply. And so I was glad that my Bermuda number, my Sinodin number was four grams, uh, linked to a maximum growth potential of one. Um, and I guess, you know, people have, hit, were, have been asking me over the past few days, I've been giving seminars in, in France and, uh, 
uh, talking about, you know, how would you do ryegrass? What, what would I use as a standard for ryegrass if it was on a, a football pitch or something? And, you know, I think, you know, I might use four as a, as a standard for ryegrass also. Um, and then for seashore paspalum, I use three, three grams of nitrogen per square meter, 30 kilograms per hectare or, or 0.6 pounds per thousand square feet. And for poa annua, I also use three currently. And for bank grass and for zoysia, I drop it down to two. And, and for fescue, um, I, I kind of guess at it, but I, I kind of feel like two or maybe for fescue, I might even go a little bit lower. Um, so, so that's, those are the numbers that I use. So I, I definitely vary it by species and by warm season. So it, it didn't surprise me that, that that's the number that you got for, for greens. Cause I think for the warm season greens, it's mostly going to be Bermuda grass that you were measuring or, yeah. or, or the survey respondents were growing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess the other, you know, the other thing we did here was calculate what that, that Nmax parameter is on, on tees, fairways and roughs, and then mm -hmm. uh, an area weighted average across the whole golf course. And, um, and basically if you go all the way down to roughs, the, the Nmax parameter that people are, uh, using is, is about what 0.7 grams per square meter per month. Um, and, uh, and then if you average over the whole golf course, it's about one, uh, gram per square meter per month of nitrogen. And so, um, yeah, I, I just, I don't know if people are using growth potential and, uh, maximum nitrogen requirement outside of greens, but if they are, that's, you know, that's what we found there. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that is table four out of a table and a figure packed article. And I, I think it's, it's fascinating. So, um, Michael, we, we suddenly, uh, have used almost 30 minutes, uh, talking about this. I, I actually, uh, wanted to talk about, can we talk about real, real quick about sure. your other, uh, paper that was in the International Turfgrass Society Research Journal? Um, and, and that article, uh, the title was estimated energy use and greenhouse gas emissions associated with golf course turf grass maintenance in the northern USA. And let's just talk about like that key point in the abstract about what uh what you can do. Maybe maybe yeah. give us an a quick overview of that and then we'll just talk about why it uh fuel is the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions by far. And just let that people recognize that uh and then maybe we'll talk about that on a future episode if you'll agree to join me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd happily do a full episode with you on, on just carbon. But the, the short story is that if you look at all of the different sources of carbon emissions um, on a, in, golf, in golf course turf grass maintenance, that includes the production of fertilizers and pesticides and the, a whole life cycle analysis. So not only the energy being used at the golf course, but all of the energy, embedded energy in the supply chain of, of what it takes to, to run a golf course. What comes out is the the major emission factors are fuel fuel use, as you said, is the top uh, emission category, and then also electricity use is a big uh, emitter, it, at least in the area of the the world where we did the the study, which was in the northern in the northern U.S. 
And so the question is, how do you reduce emissions in golf course turf grass maintenance? Well, you, you target those two big categories. And my recommendation is to start to switch to um, electric maintenance equipment and, and uh, make sure that you are sourcing low carbon electricity. And so then you address those two top categories of emissions. You address the fuel use. You're going to start using less fuel because you're, you're charging your equipment as opposed to filling it with fuel. And yeah. then the electricity that you need to charge that equipment uh, and to run everything else at your maintenance facility, if that's coming from a low carbon source, then, then you've uh, addressed that area of emissions as well. Thank you. So um, this article, I'll put a link to it also. Uh, this is also an open access article, so anybody can read it. And it's written in a very accessible style. So I think it 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 is easily understandable um, because everybody knows about these topics, about uh, the work that's done to maintain golf courses. Um, I, I sometimes get the question... Uh, People say, well, you know, my electricity is generated from a coal burning power plant. So I don't, I don't need to elect, you know, it, what benefit do I have of electrifying the equipment if it's just going to be using electricity that comes from coal? But there's huge efficiency improvements uh, by using electric engines over diesel or gasoline engines. So Absolutely. the I don't know if it's a factor of three or a factor of four, but it's something like that, that simply by using an electric uh, powered motor to do the work, even if you're using the dirtiest electricity generating source available, you still reduce the emissions uh, by, by a huge amount. Um, do you, do you know about that? Yeah, we've run those calculations to answer exactly that question. Um, and yes, a, even a coal burning power plant is much more energy efficient than an internal combustion engine. So you still, if you switch from a gasoline mower to an electric mower that is uh, powered from, uh, is powered by coal, essentially, um, you're still going to reduce your emissions. It depends exactly, but somewhere between 30 and 50%. Um, and if you, but if you, let's say, I don't know, installed solar panels on the roof of your maintenance building, then that would go from a 30 to 50% reduction to um, pretty close to a, you know, 90, 95% uh, reduction in the amount of electricity that you're, you're using. It's never a hundred percent reduction because it still costs carbon to produce those solar panels and bring them to your facility and all that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I mean, it's almost... It's pretty close to 100% if you if you start using a a, car, a clean carbon source. <clears throat> yeah, that that I I appreciate that explanation, and I have a blog post about that also. Um, Dr. Mike Richardson asked me that question, uh, and I I made some calculations and answered it. Um, so I'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes also. Just kind of trying to explain uh, that even if you're using uh, coal, uh, powered electricity. Um, you, it's still better to, to use electric equipment rather than, uh, than gasoline or, or diesel powered. And I, uh, I was in Finland a week ago and I had a really interesting talk with Yane Leto, who is the 
golf course superintendent at Hersala Golf. And they've recently completed uh, completely changing their fleet of fairway mowers to electrically powered machines, uh, auto mowers, ro- robotic uh, auto mowers. And 75% of their uh, rough is now mown by auto mowers. And I, I think eventually they'll transition completely to electric uh, mowing equipment, uh, maybe except for the putting greens, but, but all the fairways, all of the rough. And so I was talking with Yane, and I have a video about that. I can also put a link to that so you can hear his experience with that. Uh, and I asked him, well, okay, so so your your diesel cost went down a lot. And he's like, yeah, our, you know, they're, they're using 90% less fuel. So that went down. And I'm like, well, I guess your electricity costs went up. And he said, well, no, because we put solar panels on the roof of the clubhouse <laughs> and that powers our fleet. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> There, there's so many uh, cool things that are happening around the world uh, with, uh, you know, producing good surfaces, great golfing experiences, uh, trying to do so in the most sustainable way. And uh, I, I'm glad that I get to learn about some of those and get a chance to talk with people like you who are doing research that helps uh, explain and, and give ideas about what we, what we can do. Cool. Yeah. No, happy to do it. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, Dr. Beckenwell, um, I need to uh, get checked out of this hotel room and, and uh, get heading to the airport for a, uh, a bit of a journey. So, uh, yeah, long I, safe travels. <clears throat> yeah, thank you. So um, I, I think we may have a chance to talk again, and uh, um, I'll see you at the conference in Thailand in March, which is going to be great. And yeah, we're not we're not so far away. I'll, anything else before before we go? Uh, no, just thanks for thanks for having me. Look forward to having another conversation about about carbon and in full. And excited to be coming uh, to the conference in Thailand uh, next March. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks, Michael. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. And uh, yeah, it's funny. The last time I saw Michael, that I. Re- the last time I remember meeting in person, we were in Copenhagen. That's uh, right. And that's where you are right now. And that's that? where I am right now. So <laughs> I'll sign off, say say uh, goodbye to everyone for ATC uh, from Copenhagen. I am Michael Woods. Bye-bye.